So first of all, yeah, today's a little today's gonna be a little a little weird because it's gonna seem like a, it's gonna be like half sermon, half history lesson kind of kind of deal. So, but I'm sure I'm sure we can all we can all bear we can all bear together. So it's imperative that as we as we seek to be a gospel-centered, multicultural, and spirit-led church, that we seek to live wisely in the spaces in which the Lord has placed us. Now, for us specifically, that means living in this country. And living in this country necessitates a facing head-on of this country's virulently racist past leading into our present, where there still remains this racism. But most disturbing is not the fact that a bunch of people in American history have been racist. Sin, sin ought to be offensive to us, but it ought never be surprising. We ought to expect this kind of thing. If any of us knows our own hearts, we know that we're capable of horrible words, thoughts, and deeds. What Jamar's book spends a fair amount of time with, however, and, they, and you can tell from the subtitle, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism, is about the ways in which the Christian church, particularly a number of white Christians, have constantly been on the wrong side of this, either giving theological justification for racism or remaining silent in the face of, of the torture and deaths of particularly black people. Now, this is not to reduce the necessity of, of understanding the history of all peoples in this country. So don't hear a diminishment of other stories in this discussion. Don't hear a diminishment of the history of the attempted genocide of Native Americans, a history of immigration, both from Europe and also from our southern border, which is currently in controversy because of the so-called because of the concentration camps that we have, particularly in this state. No, instead consider this a scalpel, honing in on a particular prevalent pattern of sin. The goal here is not, and never is, guilt for the sake of guilt. This is guilt for the sake of repentance. Because I assure you, most of us, if not all of us, are guilty. But I want us to keep in, I want us to keep in mind the goodness, the goodness of God that we've been singing about. Because it's going to be necessary uh, as we dig into what is the depravity of humankind. And so, I, so the, goal, the goal is this. That we see and feel not only the danger of our sin, but also the filthiness of it. How contrary it is to the goodness and the mercy of God and the, and the righteous law of God, that we would take hold of God's mercy, that we would grieve for and hate our sin, turning from it to God, planning and working to walk with him in all of his commandments. That's what, that's what we want to see, and that's what we want to cultivate through the preaching of and application of the gospel. And that's what we want to cultivate through looking at this particular history. So the scripture that I want us to focus on this afternoon as we, as we consider Jamar's book, The Color of Compromise. It's not generally one of the verses that we go to when we think about issues of racial justice. I'm not going to go to Galatians 2. I'm not going to go to Ephesians or, or Revelation 7. I'm going to go to Romans 8. Now, the book of Romans is, is, is magisterial. Paul's main purpose is to outline, first of all, the plight of the sinner, standing naturally under the wrath of God because of our sin. But after explaining the plight of the sinner, he moves to the remedy. This, 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 this cure to this disease that we, that, that, we, that, that we walk in. And that remedy is found only in faith in Jesus Christ. The salvation that's given only by the grace of God. But it's in considering this cure that Paul then tells us how we ought to live after having taken hold of this remedy. 
And this is Romans 8, 12, and 13. Paul says this. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, in considering this in considering this question of how do we fight sin, because that's what this is about, how do we fight sin? Uh, one of my favorite uh, 17th century theologians says, says this about it. He says, we need to be intimately acquainted with the ways, wiles, methods, advantages, and occasions which give sin its success. This is how men deal with their enemies. They search out their plans, ponder their goals, and consider how and by what means they have prevailed over them in the past. Then they can be defeated. Without this kind of strategic thinking, warfare would be primitive. It's exactly right when we consider the Christian battle with sin. And it's especially true in the particular application of thinking about race in America. Jamar's book traces many of the ways, wiles, and methods of racism from the colonial era through to this day. In the colonial period, he traces the construction of racial categories fundamentally formed to justify enslavement and to justify genocide. As he says, explaining, explaining what, what he means when he, when he talks about race as this, as this thing that we've constructed. He says this, the development of the idea of race required the intentional actions of people in the social, political, and religious spheres to decide that skin color determined who would be enslaved and over time, Europeans made laws that came to set in stone the placement of power in the hands of those who they considered white, and they withheld equality from those whom they considered black. And the colonial period in starting this, in, 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 in many ways, starting this discussion, was a period of flux where we saw moments of possibility. There were moments where this could have gone any number of ways. But we find that the economic success of slavery and other factors made racism just a little bit too enticing. Jamar outlines the Middle Passage, the brutal trip from Africa to the Americas in which many kidnapped Africans died in brutal conditions. He outlines the brutality of the slave trade. He outlines the brutality of living as a slave. He goes through the laws that were created to maintain these positions of slavery. There's a book called The Baptism of, uh, of Early Virginia by, uh, her name's Rebecca, Rebecca Getz. And she talks about the laws, uh, the laws, so, Basically, there was an idea that baptism set you free. It would spread in, it would spread in slave communities that, 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 that freedom in Christ was, I mean, like, this was a, this was a, this was a full, it was a full, a fully orb freedom. And so they thought, oh, well, this baptism means that freedom extends also to other parts of my life. Slaveholders were like, oh, we ain't, we ain't having that. And so you have, so you have laws on the books in Virginia and in a number of other states Say, hey, baptism doesn't free you from your doesn't doesn't free you from your bondage to your master. So you may be free in the eyes of Jesus, but you're not free in mine. Essentially, the book also book goes through the, 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 the hypocrisy of the American Revolution, a, a war that's fought uh, for the sake of freedom when you have a significant population of the country that still remains unfree. Talks about the impetus behind the Civil War, that this was a war that was fought to maintain slavery. Talks about uh, emancipation by a president who didn't really want to emancipate the slaves, but who really intended 
for black people, who, who never intended for, for, for black people to have robust equality. You can look at quotes uh, from Lincoln to this, to this effect. Talks about the, um, you've probably heard the phrase, uh, 40 acres and a mule. This was a suggestion from 20 pastors to General Sherman. When, General, when, when he, 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 he gathered a bunch of leaders, a, 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 a bunch of leaders of the free black community and asked them, what, are free, what, do, what do free slaves need in order, to, in order to thrive? And they said, land. We need land. We need to be able to build. We need to be able to build on land. Sherman's like, okay. They asked for 40 acres on a mule. Okay. And so they consulted, so, so, so in, this, this is in 1862. They confiscated land of, land of slave owners and gave, the, and gave that land to free slaves. This lasted for a few months. Sorry, this happened in 1865. This lasts for a few months. Because, Link, because after, Lincoln, after Lincoln dies, Johnson takes over and rips that land out from under those freed slaves and gives it back to slave owners. This is the history, this is the history that we're, that we're, that we're going through. So if that's the, that's the, that's the picture of so-called so emancipation. After emancipation, you have 12 years of reconstruction, 12 years of hope. Uh, I think it's I think it's it's Frederick Douglass who says that 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 that, that for a moment, uh, for for a moment, the freed slaves stood in the sun, before he was dragged back into darkness. Because those 12 years, you see unprecedented you see unprecedented uh, black representation in Congress, in 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 local in, in local governments, and elsewhere. But you also see the rise of these paramilitary groups, the KKK, the Native Sons of the South, these, all these other, all these other groups. Because this idea is, uh, these freed slaves are getting too uppity. <coughs> and so you start to see, you start to see this rise in violence. But, but it happens under explicitly, there are explicitly Christian claims that, un, that undermine it. This is an important thing to know about, about partic particularly the history of the Klan, that it was meant to be, they saw themselves as a white, American Protestant group. So if you were non-white, you were a threat. If you were not American, you're a threat. So immigrants are a threat. If you're not Protestant, you're a threat. Catholics are a threat. And so and so and so these these groups and other groups were were were, were focused on making sure that particularly the black population of this country did not exert its rights. And these things were not only not only backed by churches, but I mean, you have you, you, you have pastors in, in high levels of these of these organizations. Now I'm not going to go through I'm not going to go through this whole history. There's a lot of it. I I, I encourage that I encourage you to read to read the book um, because he goes into he goes into Jim Crow. He talks about um, uh, uh, he talks about the GI Bill. He talks about redlining. He talks about residential segregation. He talks about Brown versus Board of Education. Like there's there's all kinds of, there's all kinds of stuff. There's, there's a guy. Sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Um, but he but he runs it up to he runs it he runs it up to today. Um, and that's why uh, and that's and, and, and that's why we want to spend a little bit of time talking about it because uh, in in previous eras racism among Christian believers was was easier to detect and identify. Professing believers openly used racial slurs, 
participated in beatings and lynchings. They fought, fought wars to preserve slavery, used the Bible to argue for the inherent inferiority of black people. But if they didn't openly resist these actions, they were complicit in their, in their acceptance. They were silent in the face of it. Now, after the 1970s, and this, is, and this is one of the main results of the civil rights movement, civil rights movement is not so much this kind of moral epiphany in the country. That's not what happened. Essentially, uh, essentially, um, what, what actually happens is that this kind of open racism is shamed, so it's pushed underground. So what happens is that it's not that these things go away, it's just that they pop up in other forms. And this is one of the things that he, that he emphasizes in the book, is that racism hasn't gone away, it just adapts. And this is very similar to, uh, I mean, it's, it's similar to our battle with sin in general. It's not, it's not, it's not something that just kind, of, just kind of goes away as much as we would like it to. The fight is a constant, the fight is a constant fight. But it's important for us to understand specifically with reference to racism that this has always been nonsensical, <laughs> evil, and aimed at self-interest. The nonsensical. Uh, in slavery, uh, it was all black men were considered to be physically strong, so they ought to be, they ought to be slaves. Then you get to the Civil War, and you start seeing the argument, oh no, white men are physically strong, so they're the best soldiers. You'll notice that when you look at these narratives throughout, throughout history, people just say what they want to say to do what they want to do. And that's essentially, and that's essentially where you get, um, that's essentially where you get a lot of racist ideology. Probably the most helpful way to think about this, and this happens any any time I talk about race. This is the most helpful way to think about it. The way we tend to think about it is that uh, we move from ignorance and hate to racist ideas to racist policies. That that's the idea. And so this is this is why this is why this is this, this is why people tend to get defensive when somebody is referred to as racist. Because the idea is, no, I'm not racist. I'm not, I'm not ignorant and hateful. Because the idea is that just that very close link between ignorance and hate, racist ideas, racist policies. When you look at American history, it works the other way around. It starts with, it starts with policies that look to disadvantage particular people that then need to be justified in some way, which then leads to ignorance and hate. Here's an example. American slavery. When the Portuguese came to Africa and saw how lucrative slavery could be, the thought was not, oh, these black people are inferior. The thought was, let's, let's do this and let's find some way to justify doing this. So they go back to the Pope and tell them, hey, let's do this slavery thing because we want to Christianize the heathen. That'll work. That's a way that we can continue to do this thing that makes us a lot of money, and we can appear to be doing it for a righteous reason. Now, as that as time continues, you start having to think of other ways to kind of bolster this thing that gives us so much benefit. And so you get arguments of, oh, well, you know, uh, they, they, they should be slaves because they're inferior. So, so, so it's actually important that we continue to do this because we're doing this for their benefit. Also a lot of cash for us, but also their benefit. But when you look through American history, a lot of, a lot of, the, a lot, a lot of the policies that, that end up having racist effects, where they, where, they, where they disproportionately affect specifically black people, these things began specifically because of self-interest. 
And it's important for us to remember, as we consider these things, because I, 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 I encourage you, to, I encourage you to, read, to read this book, but it's important for us to remember that this is, this is an issue um, of life and death. Uh, it was, it's, and it's been one uh, for centuries. So sure, uh, communities have more or less stopped publicly hanging and burning black men alive. Yes, we don't see that very often now. Yet narratives of black male criminality continue to guide media narratives, residential choices, dinner conversations, and even presidential addresses. Now don't hear me as telling you who to vote for because that's not our job or our place. As Mosaic, we're, we're nonpartisan, but we are not apolitical. Because the fact of the matter is, is that the application of the gospel applies to every sphere of our lives. So there's no, there's, there's, there's nothing that the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't, doesn't speak to. And so there are two, I have two examples that, um, that ought to, uh, ought to make us uncomfortable. These two examples are, are two, uh, are two current Frontrunners in our two major political parties. So first of all, Uncle Joe Biden. So recently talked about his caucus with James O. Eastland, a name that may not mean anything to you, it will in a second. James O. Eastland was a Mississippi cotton planter, lawyer, and lawmaker. And in talking and in, and Biden in talking about his his caucus with, with Eastland, he said he said these words. He said uh, he said, he never called me boy, he called me son. Now, Mr. Biden, that statement doesn't mean anything to me because white men have called black men boy for years as an, as an act of racial, of racial diminution. There's, there's this fact that, 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 that black men are never men, they're, they're boys in the, in, the, in the eyes of men. And so there was never a risk, there was never a risk that Eastland would call Biden boy. So the fact that he's using, like he uses that as this, as this kind of rhetorical thing to say, hey, like I've, I've been able to work with, I've been able to work with, you know, these virulent racist people like Eastland who, who has said, or who said that black Americans were an inferior race, that integration would lead to mongrelization. But also, Eastman's father, this is not to say that he's guilty of the sins of his father, but it is to say that he's, 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 part, of a, he's part of a family that's engaged in, in particular actions. His father's name is Woody Eastman. Now back in the 19-teens, there's a couple named Luther and Mary Holbert. There's a, there's a, there, there is a, uh, a murder as a result of some kind of altercation, um, a man, Woody's brother, ends up dead, and there's another, another black man as well. And so Woody Eastman, the father of this senator, gathers a mob uh, in order to find Luther Fulbert and his wife. They find him, they find both of them, beat Luther to the point that and one of his eyes is falling out. They, they use corkscrews to dig out pieces of their flesh. They, they burn his wife alive in front of him to make him watch before they kill him. And they do this in front of a black church. 
of history that has shaped that that shapes that shapes this country. And this is the kind of and this is the kind of this this kind of <laughs> the suggestion then is that in the face of this kind of history, in the face of um, uh, in, in the face of people who who back these kinds of actions, who have kind of stood stood by as these as these things have happened, uh, we, we we hear that the answer is uh, the, the answer is civility as a virtue as a, as opposed to anger. That if we're if we're angry as a result of that, these these images ought to ought to incite a kind of rage. But the idea is that uh, is that if we're angry, then we're obstacles to civil discourse. Well, sorry, y'all, but resistance to white supremacy is not not always a civil enterprise. Nonviolent, yes, but civil in the terms of courteous and polite, and all, it's not always can't always be that way. The other example is from our other front runner, who also happens to be our current president. So, um, thirty years ago. Um, 30 years ago, our current president called for the death penalty for five teenage black boys, Antron McCray, Kevin Richardson, Raymond Santana Jr., Yusuf Salam, and Corey Wise, also known as the Central Park Five, who were wrongfully accused and, and convicted of rape back in, back in 1989. Um, a, a, a jogger in Central Park is, is, is brutally beaten and raped, and, and, and essentially the prosecutors and the police forced these confessions out of these five boys between the ages of 14 and 16. And all of them go to prison. And it's not until it's not until 2000, in 2002 or 2001, the guy who actually did commit these rapes was in prison for a life sentence for other rapes that he had that he had committed during that time. And he met one of the he met one of these boys in prison, found out that he was in prison for what he had done, and confessed to it. And so then, at this at this point, these boys had all had, had actually already spent their time. So their time had all their time had already their ch their childhood had already been stolen from them. But this guy confesses, and their and their and their cases are evacuated in, in two thousand two. And yet, in the midst of this, as all this was going on, uh, Donald Trump took out a full page ad, and you can you you, you can find this ad online. The, the, the headline is "Bring Back the Death Penalty." Bring back our cops. And he says, basically, all these kids need to die for what they did. And so a few days ago, um, a few days ago, he was a, he was approached, and a, and a reporter asked him the question, "Hey, you have anything to say about um, uh, about about that case? If you know, um, recently there's been, uh, a, a four-part miniseries has come out on, on on Netflix called When They When They See Us. Uh, it's it's." Harrowing. Uh, I finished watching it yesterday. I was just weeping the whole time. Um, but but it 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 outlines the case. But as a result of that case, the the uh, the prosecutors who did this in the in in the late eighties and, and early nineties have lost their have lost their jobs because it's come because it's come to light the kinds of the kinds of ridiculous things that they did to these boys. And so 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 this reporter approached. Uh, approached Trump and asked this question, and, and his response was, um, you have people on both sides of that. They admitted their guilt. If you look at Linda Fairstein and you look at some of the prosecutors, they think that the city never should have settled that case. So we'll leave it at that. If you're black in America, and if you know American history, then you know that, you, and, and, you, 
and, and you understand the way that uh, the way that specifically the justice system has often worked, then you know that there there have been many cases where confessions have been coerced. To make the lynching point again, it was almost ritualistic to coerce a confession out of the accused before you doused them in gasoline. It wouldn't matter when after the fact those confessions were found to be false. So also here. And if on top of the unjust detainment, illegal interrogation, and dismissal of pertinent evidence in the cases of these five boys, which led to the incarceration of each of them in a system that was meant to break people, if in the midst of that you wrongfully use lynch mob rhetoric to advocate for their death, the right response is apology or repentance, but not some kind of both sides of it. So I'm, 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 I'm going to pass this. I'm going to pass this to Slim in a minute as we as we think of as we think about specifically the last chapter of this book where he talks about uh, you know how do we how do we come to terms with this history? What what kind of action does this does this push us towards? Um, but I want to go back to back to this quote from from John from John Owen, who was that 17th century theologian that I that I uh, quoted before. If you ever want possibly the best book on sanctification. The mortification of sin. Oh, oh, oh! Basically, it's a it's a it's a it's a book on reflection on Romans eight thirteen. So it's like, what is it? Basically, ask the question: What does it mean to by the spirit, by the spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh? What does that mean? Whole book is on that. It's glorious. But the quote is: We need to be intimately acquainted with the ways, wiles, methods, advantages, and occasions. Which give, which give sin its success. This is how men deal with their enemies. They search out their plans, ponder their goals, and consider how and by what means they, they have prevailed over them in the past. This is imperative. If we seek to be beacons of the good news of Jesus Christ, the only message of salvation, wherever the Lord has placed us, we must know the wiles of the enemy. Racist thought the construction of racist structures, and the enforcement and creation of racist laws are just that, wiles of the enemy. And we must always have an ear poised toward our brothers and sisters and our neighbors to acquaint ourselves with the ways, wiles, and methods that often escape our view. Sin is in here and out there. And yet, Jesus came with a purpose. 1 John 3.8 says it plainly. Says straight up, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And if we have been united to Christ by faith, then we must have that same goal. And we must be on the and, and, and if we're going to get on the train of Christ's salvation, then we have to devote ourselves to that destination. And that destination is the coming of the new heavens and new earth, and is the daily destruction of the works of the devil. So none of this is possible or healthy <laughs> apart from conversion, apart from turning, apart from turning to Christ for our salvation. Because the fight against sin ends in despair apart from Christ. The fight against this book, if you read this, if you, if you just read this book, it's, it's overwhelming. Because sin is overwhelming. It just is. Human, if, we stare, if we stare into human depravity for long, it, is, it leads to despair. I'm doing my PhD on lynching. Like on lynching. So literally, like that's, that's what my time is spent doing. 
if if I didn't if I didn't know if I didn't know Jesus, I would be a wreck. I have friends who have started along this path and have figured out like I can't do this. I can't do this reason. It's too dark. The only reason, the only reason that I can, that I that I can continue to the only, the only reason I can, I can even do this in front of you in front of you this morning is because I is because the God that I serve is much greater than human depravity. I can I can read all this read all this stuff horrible 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 things that people have done to other people and, and horrible things that people continue to do to one another. But if 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 that is if if that's the end, if that's the end. There is no hope. And so I want you, I, I you know, feel, there's, there's, a lot to, there's a lot to feel in the midst of this. There may be guilt, there may be anger, there may be all those things. But apart from Christ, there is no relief, there is no hope, and there is no strength for the fight. You will see the darkness and you will flail against it to no avail. So as much as my plea is for you to battle this and any sin, because this is, this is, this in, in dealing with issues of issues of race, I mean, this is this is this is the way that we ought we we ought to feel this we ought to feel this way about greed. We ought to feel this way about lust. We ought to feel this way about pride. We ought to feel this way about envy. We ought to feel this way about about any sin that separates us from our Lord. But deeper than deeper than my plea for you to battle daily with that, deeper is my plea for you to for you to repent and believe in the gospel. That Christ our Lord has died and, 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 and been raised for your salvation. But if, this, if you believe this gospel, then this fight, this daily fight against sin in all of its forms, this daily fight against the wiles of the devil in all of its forms, is non-negotiable. So, let's talk about it. <laughs> I don't know what else I can say. <laughs> Ooh, Malcolm. Preach. Preach. Um, well, yeah, seriously. Thank you, Malcolm. We need to hear this. We need to hear this. Um, what he just ended on with the, the ugliness of our sin and the seriousness of what this book talks about, the truth, that is just ho- so hard to just look at and to gaze at. I want us to really embrace uh, this as a, as a way of life. To go like, we are just as serious about sin but at the same time we're just that means we have to be just as serious about God's grace and love for us because outside of that grace we, we have no hope. Um, and so this is pushing us to go, thank you Jesus. <laughs> it's pushing us to go like, I need Jesus more and more and more and more. And so um, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm, I've been asked to kind of go into the... Uh, the uh, what's up? I'm up here with you. You're up here with yeah, me? I'm up great, here. great. Um, um, I've been asked to kind of look at the... The question that we always have with these types of conversations is, then so what? Um, how then do we now move forward? Um, and what's the next steps? And I think one of the things that I think is helpful for us to be thinking through... Um, he, he talks about this early in the book. He says, why write about racism and religion? He says, this study is not about discrediting the church or Christians. I love the church. My concern for the church, for the well-being of its people, motivates my exploration of Christian complicity and racism. The goal is to build up the body of Christ by speaking truth and love. And so I think that's helpful for us to be thinking through this. That this is not just for us to, again, I think there's a tendency for us to read this and to hear this and go, just 
immense guilt and weightiness. Um, but the goal here is to, as he said, not just to like absolve us of that, but have that guilt push us uh, to repentance and to change. Um, but that process of, of change, like mortification of sin, is a, always a slow process. Watching this grass grow um, is that process. We're not going to see that grass grow very tall. You can, and maybe even a better illustration is watching the grass in the playground area grow, <laughs> where there is no grass at all. <laughs> um, and maybe and trying to see that grow. Um, but here's what here's what uh, Jamar's how to what so what comes up with this. Um, he he uh, argues for the um, he calls it the, the arc of racial reconciliation. Um, Oh, I want to give you this as well. This is, this is. Uh, he wanted to title his book. I think he said when he came to Baylor, he wanted to title his book "The Fierce Urgency of Now," uh, which is already taken. <laughs> uh, uh, but it's a Martin Luther King quote. He says, "We are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such a thing as being too late." This is no time for apathy or complacency. This is a time for vigorous and positive action. Elsewhere, he talks about the fierce urgency of now and being contrast to the, uh, the tranquilizing drug of gradualism, which is so tempting to be like, well, let's, let's not have a revolution. <laughs> let's, 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 let's go baby steps. <laughs> but when you hear of the, 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 the odious na- nature of the sin, you go, you can't do that. It's a fierce urgency of now. And so here's what, here's what his, his uh, recommendation here is, um, the arc of racial justice. And it, awareness, relationships, and then commitment. Um, and so I just want to share my own uh, journey along on this. Um, and I think without even knowing his arc, um, this, is, this is how it's worked for, moved for us. Because Kristen and I, we had blinders on our, pretty much our whole lives. We, I would say we admitted that this is just not even on our radar as something that um, was something we ever saw ourselves being pushed into as this being a passion and a heart cry of us. Um, but by the very first one, uh, awareness and relationship, the very first two, um, God has moved us in this direction. Um, and so awareness, he, he talks in here about things. He says, you know, watch documentaries, d- diversify your social media feed uh, with people of different color and political outlooks in yours. Uh, access websites and podcasts. And then he says, do an internet search about a particular topic instead of always asking your black friend to explain an issue to you. Um, and so his, his awareness about this is saying to increase our capacity to see that the issue is greater. Um, so helpful that knowledge actually leads to power to actually know the issues. And I think for me, for us, it kind of comes through that first one, or that second one with relationships. Through actually knowing people of color and actually now having conversations, we are now growing in our awareness. Um, uh, this has come about through our relationship with Malcolm and Desiree, but also our relationships with people uh, outside of them. But, all, but really, it came when we started fostering our children and going, we need to take this seriously. Um, we need to actually start really considering what does it mean to celebrate um, their heritage, their culture. Um, why did it take us to go through that process for that to begin the change? And so this is more of an embarrassment, uh, more of a... Uh, a confession of sin. Why does it have to go that way? Why can't it start just by awareness, through study, search, through relationships outside of that? 
But that's how it ha- happened for us. And then slowly, 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 we started reading the books and, and, and again, inviting people over. And it is amazing. That's why I think this, this stuff can be so kind of overwhelming at first. But then you go, when you are in these relationships, in these circles, it goes, well, this, everything he said here, 100%. Like, 100%. I mean, you just go, okay. That, that, it, it's, not as, it's not as, like, shocking. Um, and so I think those two are so, so important. The, the awareness, the relationships, his, uh, his examples of things to, to do with that. Start with people you know. Um, people that have ex- different experiences and perspectives of race. Um, to find new places to hang out. We are creatures of habit. Uh, have a purposeful effort to develop those relationships that are people that are different than you. Um, join a sport, club, or activity. Um, I just think this is, it, it may come out forced at first. But this is what I think is where it's so helpful. So, like, we, I've even encouraged our group here, like, hey, start shopping on Elm. Um, start walking, doing prayer walks in our neighborhood. Um, it may come out forced at first, but soon you start seeing the same people and start actually having relationships with people. Um, I think a very simple one you guys are, are engaging in right as we speak. Um, actually pushing into a church plant that's saying we specifically want to be about this. It can be uncomfortable by saying, no, I want to take this step and push into this type of um, church that's going to push us along these lines. I think is a, is a part of this process. Um, and then his last one is commitment. Um, and he says commitment to concrete action. And I think that's, that's, that's probably the hardest one for everyone. Uh, the first two are you're kind of you're you're wading into the to the deep end, and then the concrete action you're you're, you're uh, cannonballing <laughs> um, because now you are now saying we are going to take a stand. We are start, actually going to start doing things about this. Um, some of his uh, illustrations of this is create something, write a blog post, a book, do a Sunday school class, uh, join an organization organization that advocates for racial and social justice. Uh, there's one here in town that uh, uh, we've met some of the, uh, the leaders. They've come to some of our meetings here, uh, Hope and Melly with uh, Waco Immigrants Alliance. Um, it's a great one. Uh, speak with candidates for elected office and then just vote. Um, again, we're not, as he, Malcolm said, we're not telling you who to vote for, but that's an important part of it. As we talked about last week, how Romans 13 reminds us to pray for our elected officials, but remind ourselves that we are part of this, oddly, that we have some of this power in this um, and can now... In change the course of the way things are actually set, set up, systemic structures that we could actually be a part of changing that. Um, and so I think those are really important things to be thinking through. Um, some of the other stuff he talks about here um, can be fun for us to discuss. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I encourage you to read it. He's got a, he's got a lot to he's got a lot of suggestions. But one of them you guys participated in a couple weeks ago was making Juneteenth a national holiday. Um, and I, I'm seeing uh, how beautiful our Juneteenth uh, celebration is, and that is now become going to become a an annual tradition that we didn't know we started right away. <laughs> but we loved it; it was awesome. Um, although we'll pray for more water along the way. <laughs> Bigger speakers. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll have, we'll, have, we'll have better float. Yeah, we got to step up our game. Um, he also talks about seeing at the, the era we are in now, and I, I don't think this, this is hard to deny. He talks about the era we are in now uh, is participating in the, the modern-day civil rights movement. 
And because I think it's very tempting for us to say that during MLK's time, we would have stood with him. And I, 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 I think back to uh, Russell Moore, who's the, uh, what's his title? Um, with, uh, he's, he's president of the ERLC. President of the ERLC uh, for the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, spoke at um, the MLK 50 event last, two years ago uh, in Memphis. And his opening statement was um, that one bullet didn't kill MLK. Um, that it was like, that was one bullet. Yet there were so many opportunities before then for people to speak up and to stand with MLK to actually stop the movement that was happening for people in the hatred that was being outpoured against him that could have stopped it and could have prevented it. But this, the country was at such a state that there was just such hatred towards him at the time, including lots of pastors where you, you see his letters from Birmingham jail were saying what is killing him at this time was, was the, the, the quietness and, the, and the, the, the loud absence of voices from the pastors. And so just his, his argument here is to participate in the modern civil rights movement. Um, and so just to use our voices in, in very powerful ways. Um, I think that's very helpful. Um, publicly denouncing racism where we can. And then I think one of the, the big ones he says at the end, start a civil rights movement towards the church. So why are we talking about this in our church plant meeting? And we could have so many other church plant discussions to have, like um, <laughs> what's our outreach you know, strategy? How are we going to you know, uh, welcome visitors? All those very practical, good things that we need to have discussions about. Um, why are we doing that? Because this is, this is the heart cry of, of our church. This is, this is like a vision casting meeting right now. <laughs> because this is, this is the heart cry of our church. We're saying we need to start a civil rights movement within the church. Because the churches have been woefully absent in this era, uh, in this area. Not anything else? Yeah, and then the other thing, uh, there's another suggestion that he has, uh, which is to, uh, to, listen, to listen to the black church. Now, that's a, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting suggestion. Um, because throughout this entire book, where you see the ways in which the American church has been complicit in racism. During slavery, slaves come into contact with the, they come into contact with the Bible and they come into contact with what their masters preach to them. Slaves obey your masters. This is just meant for you to become better slaves. They encounter the scriptures themselves and they're like, wait a minute. The God here seems to be bigger than that. It seems that this God freed Israel from slavery. It seems that uh, it seems that Jesus has come uh, to set people to, 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 to heal, to set people free, to do, all these, to do all these things. It seems that this gospel is bigger than this master seems to just be telling me, oh, like, this is just to make me a better slave. Throughout the entirety of American history, there, there has been there has been uh, there have been African American churches that have seen that have seen through the smoke of this, seen through the smoke of this of 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 this church into the actual into the actual gospel. And so during during Jim Crow, there were there were there were pastors preaching. This is what 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 is going on in this country is a, is a denial of the image of God in people. Throughout, throughout the lynching period, throughout the civil rights movement, all, in, 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 each of these, in each of these eras, there have been Christians who have seen, who have seen, through, who have seen through this evil. And so, and so even, even, as we, even as we look forward, we do so knowing that we're not, 
We're not reinventing the wheel here. There are resources that we can, that we can look to. As a, as a church historian, I've got like 2,000 years of church history just like theologically and stuff like that. But looking particularly in this country in a tradition that we actually have access to, the black church tradition is, what is, 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 a, is a gold mine of, of it's, a, it's, a, it's a gold mine of help, of help for us because it is, in many ways, fundamentally, it's been, it's been a persecuted, it's been a persecuted church. And, it, and in persecution, the church has, the church has produced its, 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 greatest, its greatest material, both written and also just personally. Uh, the saints who have been forged, the saints who have been forged in time of conflict are, are, are some of the, are some of the strongest. And so, um, and so one of the, so one of the things that, that we, that we, that we hope to do, um, is to also, is to also expose, uh, expose ourselves to that, to that tradition, to that tradition as well. Um, and so, so yes, there's a lot, there's a lot there. There's a lot to, lot to process. <laughs> to process. Yeah. Um, let me end with highly recommend you grab this book, read through this book. Um, he's got a podcast as well. It's fantastic. Pass the mic. Um, such good stuff. Also uh, another one called Footnotes. Um, different things he, he speaks on in different avenues there. Um, but as he said, the awareness, searching this stuff out ourselves is great. Um, building these relationships, we can only start these things now. Um, you know, sometimes we have to seek these things out. Um, and then a commitment to it, because uh, it does it can get uncomfortable. Um, just like we said with this church plant, we're trying to be multicultural, bringing different cultures in. Therefore, my cultural preference might not always be the one that <laughs> is highlighted. And so there's a, a part of what we're doing here is actually really, really hard, and we need the Spirit of the Lord to work. Um, but you want to pray for us? Yes, I was going to ask, ask that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have, Lord, to gather in your name, to worship you, um, but also, Lord, to, uh, to contemplate, Lord, the, way, the ways in which your people have uh, both suffered and, sur- and survived. Um, and, Lord, I pray, that, uh, I pray that in the midst of our, our, daily, struggle, our daily struggle with sin, uh, Lord, the, the, this, this daily work of your spirit and shaping us in, into the image of your Son, Lord, I pray that... Uh, in the midst of the despair that sin would, uh, that sin and the devil would seek to, uh, to oppress us with, in the midst of that, Lord, I pray that you would shine. I pray that you would shine your hope by your Spirit, um, Lord. I, I, I pray that in all things you would keep, you would keep, you would keep the crucified Christ before our eyes, Lord. That we would remember that in that in Christ's death and resurrection we see, yes, yes, our failure, but also, Lord, the worth that you the worth that you have given us through your love. Uh, Lord, I pray that I pray that daily that 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 every day you would you would you would renew us, give us fresh fresh and fresh infusions of your of of your of your spirit, uh, Lord, fresh 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 joys, uh, fresh mercies. Uh, Lord, I pray I, I pray all those things, especially for uh, especially for those men and women in this room. Uh, Lord, I thank you I thank you for the many ways that you that you that you continue to pour out your grace and your mercy on us. Uh, and Lord, I pray these things in the name of your son.